James, the second chapter. We're going to be reading from the 14th verse today. Next Sunday, I'm going to pause the series of James and have a special Easter message for you. And we're going to do a short little series on relationships. And I'm going to take everything we've been learning from James so far. We're just going to hit pause and say, everything we've been learning, I want to apply to the most important relationships in our lives. To our husbands, to our wives, to children, to the way we relate to co-workers, to the way we relate to our bosses, to boyfriends or girlfriends. It's going to be a powerful, very practical uh, time where we just pause for a minute and we get very real about what James has been saying to us. So we're going to start that for a few weeks and then afterwards I'm going to come back and we will pick up and go through the rest of James uh, all the way into the spring and who knows how long. It'll just be fun. We'll see where it takes us. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? Thank you for honoring the word of God this way. Next Sunday, it's going to be packed in here, so I advise you either to come early. If you have a guest, you're allowed to come. <laughs> Otherwise, pick another service. Do us a favor and come to that. That 8 o'clock service is amazing. 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at HSE. But we're not on mission if we're not able to serve uh, th- those who want to come and those who are not here yet. So please, please help me with that. Let's begin to read together. James, the second chapter, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm, be filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? I mean, what good does it do? Thus, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But if someone says... Well, you've got your faith, I've got mine, to each his own, what you say, what I say. We all have our own opinions, okay? If you have your faith and I have works, James says, listen, you show me your faith without your, with your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works, and we'll see which one is real. But if you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? I mean, do you really want to know what I have to say about this, James says? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So you see all that. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without a spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Say that last part with me. Faith without works is dead. One more time. Faith without works is dead. Now hold that. Hold that right there. Let me read you something from the book of Ephesians while you're thinking that thought. Paul says in the book of Ephesians, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Don't you just love a great controversy? 
<laughs> Don't you just love, some of you, I knew there were contradictions in the Bible, and he just proved it. Well, I'm going to explain this today. I'm going to walk into something which is probably one of the most misunderstood and most controversial passages in the entire Bible. You see, James is really trying to labor under the idea that, that it is not just what you say. I mean, you've got to be not just hearers of the word, but doers also. Don't just audit Christianity. I mean, actually do something. I mean, put it into practice in your life. No more counter fit Christianity. And in the process of trying to labor that, he puts to pen something that is completely misunderstood and often taken out of context and very controversial. All of the cults use this passage right here in James to justify why you have to do all kinds of things in order to get into God's good graces. So they've quit coming to my house. There's a big X on my house back at the Kingdom Hall on the map. They just kind of circle it, you know, and they come to your house. So I want to teach you I want to teach you and prepare you how to respond and know the truth, and that truth is going to set you free. Are you ready for this this morning? This is going to be really interesting. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you're going to share with us today. Thank you for the powerful word of God that we can feed on, that we can wrestle with, that we can, we can work to understand. Today, Lord, I pray that we won't just go home satisfied with, with a good idea, but you will compel us to act, that you will, you will show us how to behave and to live. And Father, fill me with your spirit, and may I speak as I should. I come humbly before you into the role you've called me to do today, and I take it uh, not for granted. And I ask you, Lord, to speak through me, and I pray that we'll all receive what you're saying in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. You may be seated. Let's begin. While James is the first writer of the New Testament books, he's the first one to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a letter to the church, it is Paul who is undoubtedly the most prolific of all of the New Testament writers, and he frames and shapes almost all of the theology that we know, uh, and he contributes more to the New Testament than almost all of the other apostles put together. Now, James and Paul have a lot in common. They share a lot. Both of them were hostile to Jesus in the beginning, and they didn't travel with him. They had nothing to do with Jesus as he began his ministry. I mean, James, he couldn't fathom that the boy that he shared a bedroom with, his brother, would actually be the Messiah. He said, there's no way. And Paul, who was raised an orthodox, devout, pharisaical Jew, could not imagine that some man would go around claiming to be the Messiah, especially one who was up overturning and kind of upending all of the religious tradition and, it se- and even maybe the law of, uh, that had been received from the forefathers. So he was aghast. He was, he was, this was horrible. This was something that he was going to devote his life to stamping out, uh, believing that his anger and his, and his wrath would be righteous. But both of these men had a dramatic encounter with the, the risen Christ. Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 9, two different stories of, Jesus, of Paul and James encountering the risen Lord. And when they saw him raised from the dead, their lives were changed forever. When your perception changes, you will change. And when they saw him for who he was and their eyes were opened, my Lord, my God, they were never the same There was like a 180-degree change in their life. They were headed in one direction, and from that day forward, they were going to follow after the living Christ. 
and they became incredible leaders in the church. I mean, James becomes the most prominent leader in the Jewish church. He becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And you have Paul, whom God called to take the message of Christ to the Gentiles and out into all of the regions surrounding Israel, this great voice and witness to the Gentile nations prolific leaders. But Paul begins to write. God has gifted him to write. And, and he's the, the first one to really understand, God, I see what you've been doing all along. Right back from the very beginning, the idea was that God was going to, uh, by his grace, offer an incredible gift to people, that people would never be able to earn their way to God, that God would provide a substitute that would die in the place of the one who was guilty, and the one who was guilty could participate and say, God, I need that sacrifice. By faith, I accept it. I latch onto it. And because of that faith, God would grant grace for the sin that was committed. It was this incredible system of substitution. And Paul's mind explodes one day when he realizes this is who Christ is. Christ is the lamb who is the substitute for our sin. It is by the grace of God that we have been saved. And and anyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ for their salvation will be cleansed of their sin. They'll receive the grace of God as a gift. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is the message of the entire Bible. But yet you have James that comes along, inspired by the same Holy Spirit who writes to us a seeming contradiction when he says, yeah, but it's faith, but it's also not just faith. It's faith and your works that you're justified by. So who's right, Paul or James? And I'm here to explain this morning that both are right. Both of them are right. They're both just speaking to different audiences. They have different enemies, and they're speaking about two different things. Let me explain that. They're writing about different enemies. James is writing about uh, laxity. Paul is writing about legalism. Paul is attacking all of those, the Judaizers, who would say, in order that you just, in order to believe and to receive salvation, you have to keep the whole law, all of the law, all of the tradition. You have to add that on, and you have to do all of these things, otherwise you're faith isn't genuine. And Paul attacked that relentlessly. He said, no, no, no. It is by faith that you are justified. The just shall live by faith. It is by faith. It's not by any works so that anybody can boast. Okay? James is writing about laxity. He's writing about those that say, well, you know, all you have to do is believe and you don't have to do anything else. All you have to do is believe. When they talk about works, they're talking about two different things. When Paul is talking about works, he's talking about circumcision and sacrificial system, and he's talking about tradition, and he's talking about the rules of the law. When James talks about works, he's talking about behavior, about the lifestyle of the Christian, of the acts of love that a Christian is supposed to do. So one is talking about something that's being neglected and not being done. Another's talking about, and Paul's talking about what is being added to. Do you see the difference? Do you see that they're talking about two different things? Paul is talking about What happens to me on the inside? He's talking about the root of salvation on the inside. James is talking about the fruit of salvation. What happens on the outside? Paul Paul talks about this is what you need to know in order to be a Christian, a Christ follower. And James is saying, well, this is how you show that you really are. One's talking about how to believe in Christ, and the other's talking about how to behave because you believe. Is this making sense to you? There is no contradiction. It's just simply explained in that scripture that we read before. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, listen, it is by grace, God's mercy, God's grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not something that you do. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And then look what he says, for we 
are his workmanship, his masterpiece. He made us. He created us in Christ for good works. So the three prepositions of this passage are by grace, through faith, for good works. And all three are important. And if you get them out of order, that's when you have a problem. But when you realize it is by grace, through faith, for good works, suddenly you understand James. That James is saying, I'm not in contradiction with Paul. He's talking about authentic faith that believes that will manifest itself out in good works. And James is saying, that's exactly what I'm talking about. James is saying that if, if you're really a Christian, like Paul says, receiving a gift of God, then there will be some fruit of the faith that you say that you have. There will be good works. There will be evidence. There will be, there will be outward demonstrations of the faith that you say that you have. So James isn't contradicting Paul. He's defining the work that authentic faith will have. Are you still with me for a Sunday morning? Are you thinking with me? Don't glaze over. This is going to get good. It's just important to talk about that because you could get hung up on this whole thing and then just completely miss what James really has to say. Now, James assumes then that if your faith is real and you really want to say yes to God, I mean, he's had this encounter where he's seen it, like Christ is real. He's alive. He's, he's the son of God. And he had a 180 uh, change of direction. He's assuming you've had that, that you've had that 180 change of direction. And he says, if that's true, then this is what the behavior looks like. He, he started talking about in this chapter two, he says, he starts talking about the royal law of scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you get this right, everything's gonna be right. If you get it wrong, you can't even, you, you've broken it all. Loving, the way you treat people is the indicator of how your faith is real. Another one of the disciples said, if you say that you love God, but you don't love your brother, the love of God is not in you. So James is saying, this is the most important thing, how you treat people. And so he starts walking us through the behavior of what a normal, authentic Christian looks like. All right? So how many of you have been watching the NCAA, the Final Four, all of that? You've been following that? Have you watched some of these coaches on the sideline? Do you see some of these people, how, how intense they get? Now, why are they that way? Because they want to win. And you know what? They'll yell, and they'll scream at their own players, and they'll, like, say, come on, get it right. They'll bench somebody if they're not performing right. And all of us just completely accept that. Well, of course they would do that. That's the normal behavior. And see, James is speaking to you like that. James is like, you're, you're not, this isn't just about you. Don't feel picked on. Don't feel oppressed. He's saying, you're all on this team here, and the team is supposed to win. And the team has a goal, to be the functioning body of Christ. We've got to look like Christ. We're supposed to behave like Christ, and we've got to win the world for Christ. And you're a part of that team. And so he's going to talk to you a little bit like he's one of those coaches. And you shouldn't get offended. You shouldn't take it personally. All of you who've had kids on the team, you've yelled right along with that coach, right? Get it in the, get it in the bucket. And you've yelled and you've screamed. And why? Because it's not, you love your kid, but you want him to perform well, right? Am I making sense to you? And so James is saying to you today, listen, performance does matter. It can't be all talk. It can't be just, you know, that you're going to Monday morning quarterback the Christian experience. You've got to be able to, to have actions. And so if you feel a little picked on today, he's just being a good coach to you. He's just being a good pastor. He's saying, come on, I want you to come up higher. And he starts by saying those little keywords, my brothers, my brethren, which is Paul's way of saying, <laughs> I'm about to tell you something now, okay? So look what he says. My brothers, what does it profit you? Or, or, or how does this helpful if someone says he has faith 
but has no works to back it up. I mean, can that faith save you? First point, number one, authentic faith is not just something that you say. It's not just something. A lot of people claim to be Christians. A lot of people say the right words. They know the right phrases. They thank Jesus for the Grammy. They thank Jesus for the music award. Uh, But you don't see anything in their lifestyle. You don't see anything that would indicate other than the words that they say that they're You know, everybody sings Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is like the second national anthem of America, isn't it not? Everybody sings it, but it was Jesus who said, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, you know, is going to come into my kingdom. Not everybody who says, Lord, don't you see all the stuff we did using your name? And he's going to be like, yeah, that's right. You're just using my name. I don't know you. All of you who are saying one thing and doing another, away from me. That's what Jesus is going to say. So not everybody who has the fish on the car is a Christian. Newsflash, everybody. Not everybody who has the In God We Trust plate on the back is a Christian, all right? Not everybody who has the, you know, ladies, if you go on the, you know, we've taken the word Christian and we've turned it from a noun, which is something I am. I'm supposed to be a Christ follower. It's, it's, it's who I am. And we've turned it into an adjective that we put on the front of stuff we're trying to market, in this country. It's Christian bowling. It's the Christian dating service online. And ladies, if you think that the guy on the other side, because it's the Christian dating service, that's all you need to know, we need to talk. (laughs) I'm telling you right now, I got to look out for you. I'm going to help you because you don't know what you're getting on the other side of the screen. And, you know, Christian, uh, you know, TV and, (laughs) you know, and Christian ammo, whatever we want to put in the front of, to market to a, you know, we want to hit that, that market segment, the Christians, so let's put the adjective in front. Not everything that's Christian is Christian. Paul, James is saying, it's not just something that you say, okay? Christian is something you're supposed to be. It's supposed to be who you are. And so he gives this illustration because he's getting ready to call out fake big time. Look, look what he says. Brothers or sisters. Brothers, if you see a brother or a sister naked, destitute of daily food, one of the things um, you might say to them is, oh, I feel you, brother. I feel you. I'm sorry. I pray for you. I hope you're fed. I hope God provides for your need. Be warm, be filled. But you don't give them the things which are needed for the body. What good is that? What good is that? And and notice, he's saying this isn't for everybody. This is about you Talk, and he's talking to, if you see a brother or sister, he assumes that you understand the responsibility that when you became a Christ follower, that you have some responsibility to the other brothers and sisters in the family, like you're part of a family. So you know that you've got some responsibility just inherently by being a part of the family. You've got some responsibility to other Christians. And he says, so if you've got one of the family coming to you and you're like, man, I feel for you. I feel you, dog. If you don't know what dog is, I'll explain. That's a colloquial expression. I feel you. I'm sincere. I'm praying for you. You're in church and you catch their eye and you're like, keep praising the Lord, you know, because I don't want to look too much. I don't want to make too much eye contact because I feel like I maybe should do something and I really don't want to. He's calling that out. He's saying the attitude of a Christian, the basic attitude of a Christian is generosity. That you may not have a lot, but what you do have, are you willing to share with others who are in need? And if you don't have that, notice he's not just saying that a Christian who doesn't have that, you know, it's an indicator. He says if you don't have that feeling of generosity, 
that should be like a warning light on your dashboard going off. Because he says the person who doesn't have that, it's not like your faith is weak. He says that person's faith is dead. This is why it really is, it's not just a project for us to be involved in these countries overseas. I think it's critical. I think it's so important that we would say as people who live in Hamilton County, Indiana, in one of the most wealthy places in the world, that we would engage the poorest of the poor and we would never stop doing that. And we're going to be providing cups of cold water in Jesus' name from now and forevermore. It's just part of who we are. It's what we do. So he's saying you can't just turn a blind eye to that. You can't just feel compassion like, no, that's too bad for those poor folks. You've got you've to respond. Notice what else he says. He says uh, someone will react to this. He's anticipating the reaction. Well, I don't know. That makes me feel. And so, so the, re, the intellectual reaction to what I just said is it, it sounds like this right here. Well, you know, you say it your way. I say it my way. I mean, you have your faith and I have mine. I express it this way. It's different than yours. You have no right to judge, you know, how I'm living. And, you know, you, you think about it this way and I, you do it that way. And James just hits that whole thing head on. He says, look, you show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith with my works and we'll see whose faith is real. <laughs> and he just cuts through it. You see, authentic faith, he goes on, number three, is not just something that you think. You can't just, you know, think about it and uh, intellectualize it and sit down and just make it all about discussions. Well, my opinion is, and, and I think, and this is what, you know, real faith is going to show up in behavior. It's going to manifest out in our actions some way. What we have on the heart is going to show up in our lives. It's like, it's like calories, right? You can't see faith and you can't see calories but they show up. <laughs> they show up. I mean, you can't hide it. Don't be like me, diet all day long, and then at night, cheat. You know, because if nobody's watching, then it's okay, right? I mean, no, it's not going to count. Wrong. It will show up. It shows up every time. Self-defeating habit. What we, you know, your faith is like that. It's, it's going to show up somehow. So, so if, I, if I'm James to you, if I'm, if I'm the functional James in your life, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something to this culture like this. Like, faith is going to show up in what you post on Facebook. It's going to show up in what you tweet. It's going to show up in, in uh, how you relate to people and what your reputation is and what your neighbors think and what your boss thinks of you and what, what people at your job think and what, what your, your friends at school think and, and even the people that you serve. It's all going to show up in all of that. And James is saying, what does that show? What, like a boat going across the lake, there's a wake behind it. What's in your wake? What does the wake show? Now, you see, nobody gets it right 100% of the time. I mean, I don't get my beliefs and my actions to line up. I mean, I don't. I know you do, but I don't. (laughs) Nobody in this room, I think, would lay claim, I get it right all the time. I mean, we struggle, right? We struggle making our actions line up with what we say we believe, which is why it's so important to have people in our life that we have empowered to correct us because we're blind, to our own behavior. It looks right to us. There's a way that seems right to man, but it leading to death. And so, so we've got to have people in our life that we've empowered to say, hey, hey, in this place, your behavior and what you believe is not matching up. It's not adding up to me. See, that's one of my, my jobs. I'm like that coach that I was talking about before as a pastor. And you'd come and, you, you, you know, have, have you ever uh, decided that I'm going to have at least one or, or a few spiritual authorities in my life that have the right to, to, to make a, a call on the play 
or basically, how am I doing? How's my performance? That speaks, I can't tell you how many people get so offended when I'll, you know, I'll say, hey, what's up with that behavior? And they, well, who do you think you are? You know, and what right do you have to tell me? My opinion is this, and my opinion is that. I'm like, dude, I'm just trying to help us win. You know, the, the, the goal is, is that as a coach, I'm trying to make us win. I'm trying to, trying to call out behavior that I don't see lines up with the, with, the, with, the, with the goal of us, of who we are. And it's not personal. But listen, who in your life has the right to call you back off the edge? Because if you don't have that, what you're saying by practice is, well, I'm always right. Or if nobody can ever tell you anything and you get all offended, listen, again, back to the little coaching illustration, Every time when those coaches yell at those, they don't hate their coach. They love their coach. Why? Because coach is helping us win. And people need, you know, some of us need to get a little bit desensitive, or what is the right word I'm looking for? You know, not be so sensitive to like every little, why, why, why are you telling me? I'm just, you know, you just need to be corrected. It's not personal. And do you have anybody in your life that can, that can adjust your behavior, or are you always right? That's all I really want to say about this, and by the way, it's James saying it, so I'm going to blame him, okay? <laughs> I mean, really, though, here, here's the bottom line. Jesus, uh, Paul said it this way. He says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, and the new has now come. And so what he's saying is, is that there are going to be some changes that need to happen in our life. I mean, you realize that to become a Christ follower means that he's going to change you from what you were and change how you saw things and change your perspective and change your behavior and he changes your speech patterns and, and he changes your friends. He starts to change your life. And if over time there's no change at all and you're the same person you used to be, James is going, whoa, wake up. There's something wrong here. There better be some change in your behavior. And the way that you act is not just something that you think. Don't just rely on, well, I accepted Jesus in my heart at seven. Okay, that's true. But is there any change happening in your life that you can point to and say, God is changing the way I think. He's changing the way my speech. He's changing my behavior. He's dealing with my attitudes. I don't gossip like I used to gossip. I avoid that like the plague now. I mean, is there any, is there any of that behavior shift going on. And that's all James is speaking to. It's not just something that you think. And then thirdly, or fourthly, he says, it's not even something that you just believe. Like, let's say you know the Bible, or you quote it, or you know theology. You can, you can do creeds and all of that stuff. And you say, well, this is what I believe. And he's going, it's not just what you believe. Because he, he calls it out. He says, look, you say you believe in one God? All right. Great. There's some sarcasm here from Pastor James. And he says, well, great. Even the devil believes. Even the demons believe. They're orthodox. They believe in the, you know, in the God of power that makes them tremble and shiver. And so, you know, so what if you believe? Now, why is this important? Well, because everybody believes in God today. I mean, just ask around. At, go out. Let's go out after church together. And let's just talk to people. Do you believe in God? Oh, I believe in God. Ask people in our community if they're a Christian. Everybody's a Christian, right? Everybody's a Christian. And so, so here's some, yeah, but, but do, you, do, you, do you commit yourself to being a part of a, of a local body of Christ where you attend regularly and faithfully? Well, no. Do you give your time and serve the body of Christ locally? Well, no. Do you tithe? Well, no. <laughs> do you... Do you share Christ with other people? Do you share the word of God with other people? Well, no. Do you, do you 
practice the, the, the disciplines that Jesus practiced so you're trying to become more like him in his day? Well, no. Well, so, so, so James is just calling it out as, hey, that's fake, man. If you say you believe, if you say you believe, but, but you don't actually put into practice what you're learning, he's saying it's not just what you believe, it's what you do. And that's the fifth point. That's really what his whole point is. He's saying faith isn't something you, you just say or uh, feel you know, you can get that emotion and feel the spirit and all that. He says, it's not just about that. It's not about what you think. It's not what you believe. It's really, are you going to do anything about all those things? Are you going to do something? And so he uses for his example two of the most strange people that would ever be put together to prove a point. He picks Abraham and Rahab. <laughs> can you imagine a man and a woman, a Jew and a Gentile? A patriarch, I mean, one of the most powerful patriarchs, and a prostitute. And he says, you know what? They're so different. They couldn't be further apart in every way except for this one thing, that when the, when in the time of testing, their faith translated into action. They were people of action who did what God told them to do. And so let's just read a little bit of what James tells us about them. He says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Don't you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? You need to understand something, that Abraham believed God 25 years before the event that that, that, uh, James is describing. James is describing that incredible moment where God put Abraham to the test and said, I want you to give me your son. Offer your son back up to me. What? Yeah, offer me your son. Well, 25 years before, Genesis chapter 15, this is Genesis 22, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God spoke, I'm gonna make you the father of a great nation. Look up at these stars. Your children, your descendants, you can't even number them like that. Leave your hometown, follow me. I'll take you to a place you don't even know. I'm gonna make you a father of a great nation. Even though you're impotent and you're old, follow me. And Abraham believed God, and God credited him or accounted to him the righteousness somehow that Christ would do on the cross. They didn't even know Jesus' name, not for 2,000 years, but he gives him the righteousness of Christ. So he saved a long time ago. But now, 25 years later, God gives him this test of obedience and says, I want you to give me your son. And it's incredible. And, and Abraham's going, what are you talking about? He never saw that coming. Don't you know that there are times in life where God is going to ask you to do some things that in your rational mind, it makes absolutely no sense at all. And so he says, I want you to give me your son. But God, I've been saying to you, I mean, Abraham has. He's been saying, Lord, I'm yours. Everything I am, everything I have, everything that I've got, all that, I, all that, I, that, that belongs to me, anywhere you want me to go, anything you want me to do, Abraham has been living this out. I'm yours. What? You want me to do what now? And God says, give me your son. But God, you don't understand. God, do you realize what you're asking me? I'm sure you don't realize this is the child that you promised. And you don't understand what this means. Never tell God (laughs) that he doesn't understand what you're going through. When, When God is leading you into his purpose, he doesn't stop and ask your opinion. He doesn't stop and consult with you about whether you think it's a good idea. He's just gonna come to you and say, hey, this is what I'd like you to do. He speaks to you from his word. He gives you something. This is what you need to be doing next. And you're like, I don't, never think that you have access to some kind of confidential information, confidential information that God doesn't have access to. That if you only had access to that, that you had, now he would, oh, I see. 
Now, now I understand. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to ask you that. God's not going to do that. God knows everything, the first and the last, beginning and the end. And so he comes. He knows. He, know, he doesn't even want Abraham's son, but he knows something about his heart that he wants to prove. Abraham, give me your son. And to Abraham's credit, Abraham believes God immediately. I mean, he gets up the next day, saddles the donkey, takes the wood, gets the knife, takes the fire in the little thing, gets the servants. They start heading off towards the mountain, gets to the mountain of God and says to the servants, not I, we are going to return in a couple of days. You wait here. Goes up on the mountain and the son, Isaac says, but Lord, uh, my, my father, I see the fire, I see the wood, got the knife. Where is the sacrifice? And Abraham, prophetically, not even knowing what he's saying, says, my son, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. God's going to provide somehow, some way. I don't understand it all, but he will provide. And God already had provided. There was already a lamb caught in the bushes just waiting. Abraham's building the altar. That thing's been there for so many days that, that it can't even make noise anymore. It's so tired. It's there. And w- suddenly he raises his arm to, to kill his son. And the Lord says, stop. I never wanted you to kill your son. Stop. Now I know your heart. I know, look, I've provided a lamb for you over here. I know now that you fear me more than your feelings. I know now that you will do whatever I tell you to do. Abraham's faith was proven by his actions. He actually did something when God said, this is what I want you to do. That's what James is pointing out. And then Rahab, this prostitute, who at the risk of her own life, sheltered and hid these Israelite scouts as they checked out Jericho. And God protected her because of her act of faith. She becomes this great hero of faith in the Bible. All, all she has to her credit is the fact that she did what God told her to do. And she becomes, would you believe, the great, 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 20 times great grandmother of Jesus Christ himself later on in the family tree, simply because she believes. All of this to say, James is saying to us, like, hey, faith is not just something that you say. It's not just having the words right. It's not just something that you think or feel or even believe. It's something that can be supported by a wake of action. It'll show up. So I'll close with this. There is a memorial to a French guy at Niagara Falls named Charles Blondin. And Charles Blondin was the first guy to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. It was a big deal. The media came out. Thousands of people came to watch this guy with no net underneath at all, just to walk across this little wire across Niagara Falls at the turn of the century. People were in awe. They're cheering. They're clapping. This guy goes all the way across, and he comes back over. He yells at the crowd, how many of you believe that I can do it again? And they said, we believe, we believe. And so he said, how many of you believe that I can go across and come back, but this time with a man on my back? And the crowd cheered, we believe, we believe, we want to see it. And he goes, great, I'd like the first volunteer to please step out of the audience. (laughs) And it got real quiet real fast. But one guy actually came out of the crowd. I mean, you can Google this. You can see the pictures. This is a real event. This one guy comes out of the crowd and says, "I'll, I'll go, I'll get on your back. And Charles Blondin carries this guy on his back across Niagara Falls all the way back to the thunderous applause of the crowd. Now listen, everybody believed, but one dude believed. (laughs) 
One dude, really, one guy really believed. I mean, one guy was willing, I'm putting my whole life in your hands. And this is what it means to really believe in Christ. This is what it means to say, God, I don't just believe in my head. I don't just have a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not just something I say. I'm willing to give you my entire, my whole life. I'm willing to trust you. I'm ready to turn away from my way of living, and I'm willing to follow you and do whatever you say. Whatever you ask me to do, I'm going to do. Whatever attitudes you call me to, I need to change. Whatever behavior you require from me, God, that's what I'm going to do. That is saving faith. And that's why Paul would write, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, that kind of faith, trusting, trusting God faith. It's a gift of God. It's not by works, lest any man should boast. But when you're saved, when you're all belonging to Christ like that, he's got some incredible works for you to do. And here's the best part about this. This isn't just about you. This is about us. Because none, none of us, no one of us, me, you, can be Jesus. Forget the WWJD bracelet. I can't be Jesus. I can't live up to that, and neither can you. But the, something happens. The Bible says that together we are the body of Christ. And your gifts and your abilities make up for my deficiencies and my weaknesses. And together, if we really come together in one mind and one heart, and we say we are going to be the people of God on the earth, we are going to love people well, we're going to accept people unconditionally, we are going to engage and be the hands of feet in Jesus and not let the, the cold uh, get uh, people uh, get caught up in the cold or hungry or the, or the thirsty. We're going to respond. We're going to mend the broken. We're going to be sacrificially generous. Can you imagine if that's our reputation a few years from now? And people look at, they say, those people at Heartland Church, they're the most unconditionally accepting, helpful, engaged, generous people we have ever seen. That's how you change a city. And that's what God has called us to do. Make no mistake about it. It's not about just you being a better person. God has called us to affect the city of Indianapolis for his kingdom, for his kingdom, for his kingdom. God has called us to change the world. And it starts here, and it starts with each one of us. It doesn't, it's, it's the same message that Jesus had when he came. He said, I came saying that the kingdom of God is now. So it starts with you. You repent of your sin and follow me. And so that's where all of us, when each of us have that humble heart and we say, God, I'll say yes to you, and we come together and we act like Jesus together, that church is unstoppable. Because I told you last week, love never fails. Love never fails. Love never fails. I hope you accept this today and you understand what I'm saying to you this morning. Do you receive that today? It doesn't fail. Let's do it together. I want to pray for you this morning. Will you just bow your heads for a minute? Let me ask you a couple questions. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? The scripture says, examine yourself to see if you are of the faith. So let me ask you a few questions. Just ponder these in your own heart. Am I really a Christ follower after all? I mean, has James called you out today? What has he told you that you're supposed to do that that you've been resisting and you're just struggling with? What's the Holy Spirit saying about that? Here's another question. What changes can you point to in your life? Like, is there any real difference from when you first believe until now? Do you see clear behavioral change difference in your life? Because a lot of people would say, man, it doesn't matter what you do, just as long as you believe, and James is calling that out. 
And maybe you've never really believed like I described today, like you've never really, in a sense, put yourself in the arms of Jesus and let him carry you where you've totally surrendered your life. I'm not in control. Jesus Christ, whatever you say, whatever you call me to do, all that I have, all that I am, everything that belongs to me, it's all yours. A total trust of my life to you. Many people just believe an intellectual fact about Jesus. They've been religious, but they've never committed their life to Christ. And I'm calling you to do that today. Today is your day. I know I'm not talking to you by accident. I know God brought you here. Will you respond as I pray? Heavenly Father, this sermon is over, but the message has yet to be done. I pray that we would all become doers of this word together. For the one who knows that they've just been believing some facts or they've been resisting, holding you off. I pray that today is the day that they will humble themselves before you and they will say, God, I know that you're God and I'm not and I, I recognize that I need you and I need a savior and I need the risen Christ to take control of my life. I'm sorry for holding you at a distance. I'm sorry for going my own way, for doing my own thing. I'm sorry for letting down my own standards, let alone yours. I'm sorry. And I'm ready. I'm ready to follow now. I'm ready to do whatever you ask me to do. I commit myself as best as I know how. I don't even understand it all, but, but God, I want to. I have the desire to commit myself fully to you. If that's you, just say, God, that's me. He's praying about me. Yes, God, that's me. And for somebody else, God, my... My wake that I'm leaving behind is pretty shaky. There's some things that need to be corrected. God, I'm sorry. I'm following you, but I'm distracted. I'm following you, but my attitudes are not what you would call me to be. I'm sorry, Lord. I need to let my actions show what I really believe. And I repent of that, and I come back to you today. Search us, O God. Try our hearts. See if there be anything within us that is unpleasing to you. We want to perform. We want to be better. And together we want to be your hands and feet in the world. And together we want the reputation of your son Jesus. So, Father, use us together. Unite us together. Make us one. I pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said together, amen. Amen. Come on, give God a great hand of praise for, for Pastor James.